I'll start off this morning probably by alienating one third or two thirds of the people here with the illustration I'm going to give. But bear with me for all those who are not football fans. Uh, I'm not even going to get into teams, so that would alienate another uh, quarter of you at least. Um, this past weekend was the induction of the Football Hall of Fame for uh, several um, worthy candidates. And the two that brought some of the most notoriety and fame were uh, Terrell Owens, a wide receiver, kind of from my era, I guess, and uh, Randy Moss, who some of you who are Patriot fans will remember for helping win uh, some Super Bowls. Uh, they're the top. They're, they're two of the top three receivers in in uh, the category of receiving touchdowns in the NFL. The first is Jerry Rice, and then uh, and then uh, these other two, Terrell Owens and Randy Moss. Both of them have some similar things in that, and 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 their football careers, they they tended to grate on certain people. They had personalities that were let's let's just say weren't uh, humble. And, uh, and, and they were very flashy, had tremendous talent. But there was one difference between the two. And the biggest difference between the two is Randy Moss uh, had, a tr- had a tremendous uh, gift and a talent here and in, in, in being an NFL wide receiver, the one who catches the, the footballs from the quarterback. Um, but there were times where Randy Moss, and even those of you who are Patriot fans will remember these times, uh, when he seemed to quit on some plays. He didn't give his all. Terrell Owens, on the other hand, though he had some issues with his team and his coach, coaches and the, even the fans and, and the organization, his former coaches and teammates said this about him, he always gave his all. He always gave his all. He, in practice, on the field, uh, whether you liked it or not, T.O. gave you everything he had. And there's a certain respect that I have for people and players who, no matter how talented they are, no matter how good they are, no matter what situation they're in, they give it their all. I've coached basketball uh, in the past. I coached at the uh, high school um, that I taught at. Um, in Oregon, and then um, Clinton and I helped coach here when we had the school. And there were some players who had tremendous talent, but didn't have tremendous drive. And then there were some players who may have tremendous, may have had tremendous talent, or may not have had tremendous talent, but they always had a tremendous drive. You knew that in practice, they were the ones who were going to be sprinting the hardest back and forth on their on their wind sprints. Uh, you knew that in the games, uh, they wouldn't just be jacking up three-pointers or, uh, or, or fancy dribbling. They would be playing defense. And those players have always um, impressed me in a certain way. I have a daughter like that. Everything she does is just full bore. I mean, she's, she, 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 she's all in. Wherever she is, she's all there. And she's, she's, she's giving you everything um, that, that she has. And in this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, God is calling us, no matter where we are in our relationships, to be all in. To be all in and living for His glory. That, now that might look differently in the execution of some of these relationships and some of the bumps and some of the storms that blow up. 
But God has called us to live for His glory, to be all in, no matter where He's called us. And this has shown up several times in 1 Corinthians 7 in the past couple of weeks as we work through here. And there's an idea throughout all these situations in 1 Corinthians 7, whether you're single, whether you're widowed or a widower, whether you are married, whether you are divorced, that Paul says that we are to whatever state of relationship, God wants us to find the peace of the rock of Christ, to live for Him, and then to influence others in that way. Jason just read verses 10-16. through 16. That will be our focus here this morning. So we're continuing our study of 1 Corinthians 7. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of the chapter, verses 1-5. through 5. We studied the biblical principles of, of giving ourselves to our mates giving ourselves to our marriage partners, everything uh, that we are, serving them. Then last week we looked at verses 6-9, through and specifically at the idea of those who may be widowed or widower or even single, uh, 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 and God's guidelines for them. And today, the principles of, of marriage and divorce. Now, as we come to a passage like this, let me remind you about the way we interpret Scripture, the way we interpret these verses. One of our principles of Bible study is that we know what kind of literature we're studying. You're going to study poetry very differently than you're going to study uh, stories. You're going to study uh, letters like like we're looking at here very differently than you're going to study uh, instruction in other places. And the kind of literature we're studying is a letter, but it is a letter that is unique because one thing that is unique about the way chapter 7 is set up is that Paul is answering questions that the Corinthians had asked him in a former letter. So he's responding to that. So that affects the way we seek to understand this passage. So we need to recognize that Paul's giving a full treatment of the subject uh, he's addressing specifically, but these are specific answers to specific questions. And so we need to be careful here about the conclusions that the writer may have never intended us to draw. One of the wonderful things about the Bible is it has 66 books and there is a unity all through those books. There is an agreement all through those books and all through the 40 different authors or so. And so following the unity principle and knowing that Scripture does not contradict Scripture will help us keep on course. The subject we're talking about, of course, is critical. And I want to be, I want to be uh, uh, gentle. Uh, I want to be sensitive because um, I, I know that all of us have been affected by divorce in one way or another whether us directly or friends or family. And so I want to, be, I, I, I want to be, be gentle, I want to be pastoral, I want to be sensitive here, and I want to um, uh, uh, show you what the Word of God says in these specific situations about how to deal with it. So if we're going to have a church in our area, era, obviously divorce is one of the things that we have to be honest about and we have to deal with. And God has been very gracious and that He has given us answers on this subject to help us please the Lord in this area like all others because Jesus is Lord in all areas of life. And so we're, I want you to know though that we are specifically going to study verses 10-16 through 16 this morning. Not everything that the Bible says about this subject. I'm going to refer to some key parallel passages, but this, if, if, if we really wanted to have an exhaustive treatment, we could spend eight weeks on this particular topic. 
If you'd like to do some additional study on your, uh, yourself, I'd highly recommend Jay Adams' book on divorce and, and marriage and remarriage. Uh, he is concise. He is very clear. He is very helpful. I also want you to understand this morning that there may be people who take a different position on this subject than myself. And I've tried to be careful about studying the Word of God thoroughly before taking a position. I believe this is uh, the correct position in light of the full uh, uh, understanding of what Scripture says about this. And I have some uh, reasons from the Scriptures I, I could give uh, for, for that position. But I want you to know there are literally, friends, there are literally dozens of positions on this specific topic. I'm not saying they're all right. I'm not saying they're all good. But we need to recognize that there are differing views on this. There are other folks who are godly individuals who accomplish much for the Lord who may hold a different position. I don't think ultimately this should be a position that divides the brethren. I don't think this should be an issue of fellowship. But my goal this morning, after understanding what these verses say and mean, is so that we understand the specific applications in 1 Corinthians 7, 10-16 for each one of us regardless of your own personal position on divorce and marriage, through marriage, and I hope you have one, and I hope it's based on the Word of God, by the way. Not just your opinion. But it's an opinion based on the Word of God. But I think there's some very clear issues that emerge from this passage that should help each of us identify ways that all of us can be changing and growing. Now, as we approach this passage this morning, it's important to know that Paul is talking to three different groups of people here. Three different groups of people. And that's kind of how we're going to break it down here. First of all, God's Word to believers who are married to other believers in verse 10 and 11. Secondly, God's Word to believers who may be married to unbelievers who want to stay in the marriage. And then thirdly, God's Word to believers who are married to unbelievers who, don't, who want to divorce, who do not want to stay in the marriage. So we're going to start with, in verses 10 and 11, God's word to believers uh, who are married to believers. And His word to them is, do not divorce. Now, there are, apparently, there were some people in the church of Corinth who felt that they were married, but they didn't need marriage. Or they may have made a mistake in getting married. Or, perhaps, like he has uh, referenced earlier, they were wondering if they would actually be more effective in the service of the Lord without the responsibilities of marriage. And Paul says in verse 10, And to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Friends, I want you to understand this morning that what Paul is saying is this this morning. That live for Jesus by being committed, if you are married, be committed in your marriage to a believer. Here in verses 10 and 11. Be committed. Notice, he says in verse 10, Yet not I, but the Lord says this. In other words, Paul is saying that based on Christ's authoritative command that we find and read in the Gospels, Paul says, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Paul's reminding the Corinthians that the issue of believers being married to other believers was directly addressed by Jesus Christ. There are at least three or four times in the Gospels that this comes up. 
And Paul is talking to the couple whose marriage is shaky, two believers, and he's repeating the words of Jesus in essence and saying, Jesus' words that said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In other words, the commitment to marriage by a man and a woman is lifelong, it is underwritten by God Himself, it is not to be loosened, it is not to be destroyed by mere humans. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And Paul is making it clear that whatever uh, a spouse's motivation is, she is not to use her divorce as a way of marrying someone else. So I'm not happy in my marriage, I'm going to divorce, and I'm going to go find someone else. And Paul says, absolutely not here. And Paul is dealing with people who are asking about whether they should divorce their spouses on grounds that the Bible and Jesus and Paul consider unacceptable. And he tells them that they should not do so. And so Paul is standing right with Jesus and holding that divorce may be justified only where one partner clearly manifests a radical refusal to respect one's marital commitments and maintain the integrity of marriage. And Paul's fundamental approach to the question of Christians getting divorced is very simple. Don't. Don't. The Lord has forbidden it. Don't allow yourself the luxury of entertaining it as a possibility. Don't flirt with the idea of what is beyond the limits. And there are folks who may think, you know, I made a mistake. I married the wrong person. And it's important for you to understand the authority of the Lord's teaching and to apply yourselves in this relationship the conviction that God can work in this and He can make it new and vital. And if, he, and, 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 and if there is not a response to the spouse, He is not calling you to divorce. Paul probably is thinking about passages like Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, Mark 19, verses 4 through 12, and others, where the Lord had said things like we have in our notes. And uh, in my notes here, the, the, the Pharisees had a debate going. And one group said, you could divorce your wife for any reason. And the other group said, you could divorce your wife only for repeated adultery, for which the person refused to repent. So they came to Christ, and I'll have you turn to Matthew chapter 19, and they asked this question, is it lawful, is it allowed under Moses' law to put away his wife for any Pause. In Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus answers. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cling to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore, and here's Jesus, Jesus before was quoting, and now he's giving his um, a statement on this. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder, or separate, or divide, or divorce. Those are all words meaning the same thing. Now, in our passage in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's quoting Jesus when he says, I say this, to you, I, I'm not saying this to you, the Lord's saying this. But in Matthew 19, who is Jesus quoting? 
Well, he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where the Lord said, Wherefore they are no more two but one flesh, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So the first point we need to make about this subject, regardless of anyone on their position of divorce and remarriage, is that God's plan is for one man to be married to one woman for life. God the Father said it in Genesis chapter 2. God the Son said it in Matthew 19. And the Apostle Paul repeats it. So the command is, don't divorce. Paul wants to be clear on that. So he repeats the command from, from both perspectives. To the Christian wife, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, don't depart, don't divorce your believing husband. To the Christian husband, don't put her away. Don't divorce your believing wife. So we need to ask ourselves, well, then, where does divorce even come from? It was always God's plan for a man and a woman to be together for life. Where did divorce even come from? And the answer is not that God originated it. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24, please. Deuteronomy chapter 24. God's ideal, God's plan was always that one man, one woman for life. And Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, says this When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of the house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate or despise her and write her a bill of divorcement and gives it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter husband die which took her to be his wife her former husband which sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled for that is abomination before the Lord and you shall not cause the land to sin which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance what was going on is there were Jews who were divorcing their wives and sending them away They're leaving that woman in a position where she couldn't support herself, she couldn't remarry, she may have been open to any slander or gossip anyone wanted to make her the subject of, and God said, no, I do not want you to divorce, but here is the regulation of it if it happens. If you're going to, here is the way you have to do it. Now a few moments ago, we read from verses Jesus quoted in Matthew 19, verses 4-6. through And the Pharisees responded to Jesus, and they say in Matthew 19, Well, if this is what you're saying, let no man put them asunder, then why did Moses command to give a writing or a bill of divorcement? And Jesus says this in Matthew 19 and verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And that's why Malachi 2.16 says the Lord hates divorce. God says to believers who are married, don't divorce. So his point is, uh, in Matthew 19 and verse 8, he then says in verse 9, I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife, divorce his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery, and whoso marries her which is put away, does commit adultery. Jesus here is telling us that He holds marriage to a very high standard, doesn't He? There's an expectation there that is, that is, that is serious. And there's some things that ought, our hearts ought to respond to when we hear that. 
that God expects us to stay married. He expects us to stay married, and he's, though he's given exception, exception clauses, he expects us to stay married, and that ought to give us a tremendous amount of hope. Let me tell you why. Why would that give us a tremendous amount of hope? Because friends, God would not tell us to do something that it is impossible to do. God has given His strength and power. And friends, when, there, when, when there, are, there is a married couple who wants to act like believers and trust the Lord and believe the Lord, there is not a problem that cannot be solved by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. There is not an issue that can't be addressed and handled. And you're saying, well, what about if there's not two? What about if there are not two that are going to be surrendered to the Lord? Well, friends, that's what opens up some more of this conversation here. Sometimes people think, well, divorce is just like, a, it's just like taking scissors and it's just cutting away fabric and there you've got a clean line. No, a divorce is messy, isn't it? And it's more like ripping and tearing. And God, a loving God who knows us better than we know ourselves, who loves us more than we can ever know, has been very kind, has very, been very gracious in putting up uh, this roadblock on the divorce tra- trail and saying, believers married to believers, be very careful. Be committed to each other. You can solve marriage problems biblically. And so that gives us hope. Friends, if two believers are committed to the Lord, there's not a situation in their marriage that, that by God's grace, they can't handle. But also, it calls us to commitment. And I'm talking about people who are, who are, who are believers who are married this morning, alright? And you may have some rocky things in your relationship, but I'm, I'm telling you, divorce isn't worth it. It calls us to Commitment. Knowing that you're going to have something for a long period of time changes your commitment to it, right? Recently, by the kindness of of an anonymous person, I received a a car that replaced my car that will not pass inspection because of the rust. Now that car that I had, um, we had when we lived in Oregon, we drove all the way from Oregon to here in it and... uh, it only had 130-something miles. The engine is fine. The interior is fine. It's just the rust underneath. And, but that's it. It's not going to be worth fixing. That was a great car. But now this new car that I have, it's only got 58,000 miles on it. It's a 10-year-old car, but it has 58,000 miles on it. And so there's a lot of life left in that car, theoretically. And obviously, I am deciding to keep that car for a good for a good while to come. Now that will affect the way I view the things that I'll need to pay for it and repairs, etc. I'm committed to keeping that car till it's gone, till it's not worth fixing anymore, right? And when we approach our marriages, when we have squabbles and things that come up in our marriage, we need to always keep that in mind that we are together for life. And we are going to approach our problems with that perspective in mind. Therefore, in light of that perspective, in light of living fully in God's glory in our marriages, we're going to work this out. We're going to get help if we need it. And quite honestly, more people need help than they're willing to admit. And when they're willing to finally get help, it's many times too late, so don't wait. 
But we're going to understand that this commitment that I have till death do me part, that's that, that I'm going to have this for a long period of time, so I'm going to be committed to it. We're committed to, to keeping our marriages here. We're committed to the things we've got to fix. And that's a problem with some married couples, isn't it? They're so busy looking at the marital trade-ins, and they live, they've lived their life this whole way, right? Well, if something's bad, I'm going to trade it in, right? That it affects their commitment to their current model, their current spouse. Bell and I are not going to use the word divorce in our home. We're not going to use it in jokes. We're not going to use it in threats. For us, the subject's off limits. We're going to work out our problems. Bell knows she's stuck with me. I got the better end of that deal. But we will work on making our marriage the best it can possibly be because we're committed to obeying these verses. Now, being married to my wife, Bell, makes that easy. It's a little harder for her. But all of us who are believers, married to believers, need to ask this. Are we living out the practical implication of these verses? Do you have hope that your problems can be solved? Are you willing to do your part in solving that problem? No, but you say, but they're the other problem. They're the problem in the marriage. Well, friends, whether or not you are 90% of the problem or 10% of the problem in your marriage, you've put 100% into that whatever the problem that you're responsible for is. Do you have hope that your problems can be solved? Are you godly and courageous to roll up your sleeves and find solutions to these problems? You see, it's the weak man that just goes out and finds another woman. It's the whip that sits around and fantasizes about how much it would better it would be to be married to somebody else. And it doesn't matter if the world holds up that kind of a person as the cool, suave person, the real lover. And it doesn't matter if the world holds the woman who goes out and finds somebody else as being with it or being what a modern woman is. God's kind of man and God's kind of woman has the strength, the godliness, the faith, and the hope to get busy and to work by God's grace to get those problems solved. There's some Christians that just hold this, this, this divorce as a trump card over their spouse's head. When something goes wrong, they're stomping out of the house, they're squealing tires out of the driveway, nobody knows where they're gone, or say, well, we'll just go divorce, so I'll go find someone else. And God says in 1 Corinthians 7... 10 and 11, don't divorce. What's, what's going to be the impact on the children and Christian families where dad and mom say, we are going to be committed to live accordance with this principle and its implications? What's going to be the impact? It's going to be a great impact. It's going to be a legacy here. But also I want to caution singles here. Singles. If marriage is for life, that's God's intent. And marriage is something that you are planning and engaging in. Marriage is tough, but you know what's even tougher is being married to the wrong person. In fact, when the disciples heard what Jesus taught in Matthew 19, they said, Lord, it's better for a man not to marry. They were taking Jesus' principle too far, but they demonstrated they understood the seriousness of Jesus' statements. So friends, singles, children, 
teenagers, other singles who are looking to be married, seek someone who is seeking Christ. Seek someone who will bring you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ through their influence. Marry a believer who loves Jesus. Now, if we're going to be honest with the Scriptures here and Jesus' words, we have to say that the Lord did give an exception to the verses we've been looking at in Matthew 19. And when we hear hear that word divorce, we must not hear it as always an ungodly act. Divorce always comes from sin, but the act of divorce is not always ungodly. That might come as a shock to some of you, but it's true. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 6, God Himself says, I'm going to write the people of Israel a bill of divorcement. Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 and 19. When he found out Mary was expecting, and by the way, the engagement, the betrothal period, was seen as covenant marriage, though they had not consummated it in the physical act. It was seen legally as covenant marriage. Joseph, said, uh, when he heard Mary was pregnant, assumed that was through a, a fornicating uh, relationship, and Joseph determined to put her away to divorce her privately. But you know what the Bible then says after that? It says Joseph was a just man. He was a just man. So friends, though the act of divorce comes from sin, uh, it's rooted in sin because of problems in the marriage, the act of divorce is not always a sinful act. Understand that, please. And there are three things, I think, when you study Scripture that can end a marriage, biblically speaking. Death, which is what we are encouraging this morning. Which is what Jesus calls us to. The exception of fornication and desertion. And Jesus' exception to this command of staying married till life was in Matthew 19, verse 9. But He also said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. The word that's used there that's translated adultery is not the best translation. It's the word pornea. Adultery is the result. Pornea is the sin. It's the word pornea and it's the idea of sexual sin. And the bottom line is, Jesus did give an exception clause here for a lifelong marriage and He uses a word that refers to general sexual sin. And the general principle is that God wants believers to remain married for life, but He does allow, though divorce is never commanded, He does allow divorce in situations where a spouse is involved in ongoing sexual sin for which he or she will not repent. And so there's some things that obviously would fall from that. This does not apply in cases where the person repents. When someone repents, Luke tells us that we must forgive. And by the way, repent is not the same thing as saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is not only a confession, but it's also actions in keeping with that. So please understand that. 
Because there are people who will say, I'm sorry I did, and they'll do it again and again and again. That's not repentance. And when someone repents, the Bible says that other person must forgive. Forgiveness will then involve reconciling that relationship. There may be guidelines they need to work through here to rebuild that trust. But a person can't say, I forgive you and I'll get out of the house because I'm going to divorce you. Right? Real repentance is accepted. And secondly, divorce, as I said here, is not commanded. It's not commanded. And many of these situations need to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. And in cases where even the exception clause of fornication makes divorce possible, it still may not be the best route to take. It certainly should not be the first step. Some of you say, well, if there's an exception clause, then that's a weak view of marriage. No, friends, it's a strong one. It's a strong one. Because it's the person who would tell someone that they have no recourse even when their spouse is committing gross sexual unrepentant sin with them, or leaves them, that the spouse has to stay in that situation and subject the children to that kind of lifestyle, that's a weak view of marriage. That's not saying marriage has an integrity to it. Marriage has an integrity to it. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that we're to stay together as believers. But then notice what he says. But, and if she depart, if the wife chooses to divorce, let her remain unmarried. And here he's talking here about a wrong reason for leaving the marriage. And Paul says if she leaves the marriage for the wrong reason, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Let not the husband put away his wife. Goes both ways here. He talks about wives putting away, not putting away, divorcing, and, and husbands not putting away. Paul says that person has two options. They divorced their believing spouse unworthily, they to remain unmarried, or they be reconciled back to their spouse. But then look what he says in verses 11, or 12 through 14. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. He means the Lord had given specific instructions for believers and now Paul is going to give specific instructions to these cases that are not dressed specifically in the Gospels by the Lord. If any brother has a wife that believes not and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away and him not divorce her. And a woman which has a husband that believes not And if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. So what he's saying is this. this, Live for Jesus if you are married to an unbeliever. You, you both were married, unsaved, and along comes a time where you found Jesus, but your spouse is still an unbeliever. And Paul says, live for Jesus by being committed in your already marriage to an unbeliever. Notice that it's an apostolic authoritative command. Paul says, this I say, 
not the Lord. And what he's meaning here is the Lord addressed certain situation in the Gospels, and now I'm addressing this situation with the Gentiles and pagans. It's authoritative command. So live, un- live married to an unbeliever. If you're already married, you're not going to leave that person because they're an unbeliever. Because here's the reason. Paul says this. You have a sanctifying influence to that family. It's a powerful influence to the family. He says in verse 14, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy or set apart. What he's saying is this. Though they may still be an unbeliever, God can use your influence in that family to draw them to Christ. That may happen. You have the opportunity now, like Jesus did. Remember when Jesus touched the lepers in the Gospels? You weren't supposed to touch the lepers because it made you unclean. But when Jesus touches them, they become clean. You have an opportunity, like, 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 like Paul will talk about in Romans 10, uh, uh, with, with, a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a lump of dough, the yeast, that the, that, the, that the yeast of godliness can penetrate hearts here. God can use you who were once an unbeliever, married to an unbeliever, but you've become a believer, now married still to an unbeliever. Paul says stay in that situation because God can use you to penetrate His Word and advance His kingdom. Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, Respond, wives, appropriately to your husbands in respect so that with the possibility they may, without a word, be one to the Lord Jesus Christ. It opens up opportunities for God to work. So if you have a spouse, you're a husband, and your wife is an unbeliever, or you're a, a, a wife and your husband is an unbeliever, be committed to your marriage though your spouse is an unbeliever. It's a powerful influence to the family. And then he says this in verse 15, the third situation. But, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. If you're married to an unbeliever, and they said this person is totally different than the person I married. They want to live for Jesus. Our values are different, and I, as an unbeliever, can't handle this. I'm walking away. And Paul says, don't fight it. You must allow them to walk away. It's not the situation you're going to initiate. It's not the situation you're looking for. But Paul's saying this, if the unbelieving depart, divorces, let them depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. For God has called us to peace. For what know you, O wife? Or you may find this out. Or what do you know if this happens? Whether you shall save your husband. Or how know you, O man, whether you shall save your wife? And so what Paul is saying is this. Yes, be committed to your marriage to an unbeliever. But if they desire to depart... Paul is saying it is better to live in peace 
than it is to be kicking and screaming against their departure. Live for Jesus by allowing your unbelieving spouse to leave. Because of the principle of peace, in verse 15, and because you're trusting the Lord, your hope is rooted in the Lord, and it may be the thing that may result in their situation. So it is their decision. Paul says it releases you from the marriage. You are not in bondage in that marriage. Now you're released. You are unmarried. It follows the way of peace, and it may result in their situation. Friends, the Lord Jesus purchased us at great cost to His life. And our lives on this earth are like a vapor of fog in the air. They are fragile. They are very short. And what God wants us to understand in these three situations is what He wants us to understand in verses 6-9 through and in verses 1-5. through Use the lives that He has purchased to live full out for Jesus in whatever state you find yourself. And if I'm speaking to married couples whose relationships are stormy, look for counsel from trusted believers who know the Word of God, who will use the Word of God to guide you through wise living and next step in your relationships. But wherever you find yourself, whatever your circumstances, be all there for the sake of Jesus Christ and His Gospel. Wherever you find yourself, Jesus delights in using your life to influence other lives for the kingdom of God. Live a full, resurrected life through Jesus and for Jesus. Though we haven't brought up the topic of can someone who is divorced remarry? That will come up again here. But I want you to understand is leverage where you are for the sake of the kingdom of God. Live for Jesus' glory. Let's pray.